Welcome to Physicians of the Beaten Path, a podcast where we've set out to bust the myth that physicians cannot venture outside the traditional clinical or research career paths. My name is Alex, and I'm an MD pursuing an Oxford Clinical uh, Artificial Intelligence PhD and a Harvard MBA, and I'm interested in healthcare investing and innovation. My name is Shad, and I'm an MD and Harvard MBA student interested in healthcare investing and innovation. Our guest today is Dr. Sophia Pathai. She's a venture partner at Peppermint Venture Partners, a VC firm based in Berlin, investing in early stage healthcare companies across Europe. She invests in early stage medtech and biotech with an ophthalmology focus. She's also an independent consultant, advising investors and founders on biotech and medtech portfolio companies and design of TPPs to gain financing and eventual commercialization. Sophia holds a medical degree from University College London Medical School, a master's in epidemiology from the London School of Tropical of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and a PhD in ophthalmology and immunology, also awarded from LSHTM. Sophia, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast and welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Shad. Very happy to be here. No, absolutely. We've been looking forward to this conversation for quite a while. I think our audience is really going to learn a lot from this episode. You know, let's start from the beginning, Sophia. You've had an incredible journey, a very interesting journey. It really typifies the title of our podcast, Off the Beaten Path. So to put things in perspective for our audience members, talk to us a little bit about your story, your upbringing, your journey towards medical school, and eventually your path, your journey beyond the traditional career path. Yeah, well, thank you both again so much for the chance to share my story. I'm delighted to. Um, so I'm a, I'm a Londoner. I was uh, born at University College Hospital. And indeed, 18 years ago, that's where I ended up for a medical school. So that kind of brought me full circle very early on. Um, and as for my upbringing, well, uh, my mother's from India. And my father was actually born in South Africa. And so that get, led to a lot of family trips uh, as I was a kid. And what I found was that I got to experience firsthand at the time uh, what apartheid meant, um, and really to see the inequalities that exist in society, but also in healthcare. And in fact, uh, my uncle was a, a doctor in the Zulu homelands at the time, and I got to see him in a clinic. And it was literally a lady who was pregnant next to a lady who had TB. And I just thought, wow, my uncle's kind of doing all this great work. And it was very inspirational for me. And I really can look back at that as the kind of pivotal point that inspired me uh, to take up a career in, in medicine. Uh, so full forward back to I think, 1994, back at University College Hospital, and that's when I started my medical training. I really, it's a great medical school. I mean, it still is. And I think what was really formative for me was the opportunity to undertake intercalated BSc, because at the time, uh, our regular MBBS medical degree was five years, and you could elect to do an optional intercalated year as a Bachelor of Science. And I actually got a fellowship or an, an award to do um, an extra year as an intercalated Bachelor of Science in Tumor Biology. And for me, that was really formative because I, I stepped away from preclinical medicine, so not really anatomy or physiology, but I got a chance to go into a lab to do bench work. Um, it was at that time when, you know, co-stimulatory molecules were being discovered that we now see in ADCs and oncology. It was at the time when the VEGF pathway was just being discovered and of course, now in ophthalmology, we use anti-VEGF drugs as part of our day-to-day -day practice. So it was kind of a golden era that I was exposed to. And that really uh, caught my attention, probably more so than the clinical aspects of medicine. And what I found is when I went to be a clinical student at medical school, I really enjoyed that. That was, you know, for me, again, thinking about my uncle treating these patients. Uh, I could think, be proud that I was kind of following in his footsteps at the same time the bench was pulling me back, right? And I wanted to find out how could I blend these two kind of careers, the translational aspect of medicine with the very clinical aspects of medicine that brings us to the patient and, and indeed from the bench to, to the bedside. Um, so I kind of tried to figure that out. But, you know, in, in 2000, it was still a very, uh, it really was an unbeaten path. Like you had to really kind of figure these things out on your own. There were a few people you could go to, um, but people kind of thought it was weird if you didn't want to just become you know, a regular doctor doing your medical degree and then going off and doing your internship. So I, I did do my internship. Uh, it was very valuable. And I started off as a career um, pathologist. 
Um, as you'll tell today on this podcast, I, I love to talk. So that was a bit difficult because uh, I ended up doing postmortems for a few months and I really missed the, the interaction with people and with my patients. Uh, I turned to ophthalmology and that is a great blend, I believe, of surgery and medicine and, and generally happy days, right? You go into the clinic most days and you're engaged, you feel you're doing good for patients and you're making them see the world in a better, shinier way. So everyone's happy. At the same time, I could not get rid of that feeling of wanting to get back to the bench or wanting to understand how what the or how the choices we make in science influence what we do as doctors. Um, so I had a, I applied really for a, a fellowship to uh, take a master's in epidemiology, and that was cr another crucial turning point for me because it really enabled me to ask the right questions. So I think I, I still hold on to that uh, thesis now that in order to know what you want to do you, or to get the best data or even to make a claim for a drug, for example, you need to ask the right question. And so that uh, master's enabled me to learn how to ask these right questions. And I wanted to put that into, uh, I would say, some kind of personal perspective and, and do my own research. Um, so I applied for a Wellcome Trust Clinical PhD Fellowship. Um, they are, they were, and they still are, I guess, extremely competitive. And I didn't get round the first time I applied. And up until then, I don't think I'd failed anything. So it was a big learning for me on how to kind of uh, dust myself off, how to um, figure out a path forward. And, you know, people talk about resilience and getting up from failure. I mean, I really experienced that firsthand. And uh, what I did was I planned some pilot data collection, which I went off and did. But I had a year to, to kind of reapply because the applications were taken on an annual basis. And um, one day my mother came into uh, uh, my apartment and said, oh, I've seen this great documentary on Al Jazeera about a plane that goes around the world that doing surgeries. And I said, oh, don't be silly. I'm sure not, well, what are you talking about? I've heard of ships, but I don't think there's a plane. She said, no, 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 take a look. And the next thing I knew, I was on a, a plane myself to join the Orbis Flying Eye Hospital. And so Orbis, as, as we can go into later, is a nonprofit that focuses on treating uh, and uh, making sure we have advocacy for avoidable blindness. And this is a plane that goes around the world doing eye surgeries in the most unique of settings from Peru to Bangladesh to China to Kenya. And I had an opportunity to be a staff ophthalmologist. Um, we were either called roadies or rock stars. I was most definitely a roadie because I made sure that everything happened. Uh, you know, we got everything ready. It was a great exercise in logistics and operations. But for me, the biggest learning was that a physician is not at the center of everything we do, right? In, in the health ecosystem, it's a real team effort. And for sure, the physician or the clinician and surgeon is pivotal, right? And if you imagine this, this wheel that's turning, they're an essential part but they are one part and you need all the other aspects, all the other cogs to be working in perfect symphony. Uh, so it could be the operations people, it could be supply chain, it could be the pilots, the nurses. So that really taught me the value of working with diverse teams, with global teams. I think we spoke, I think 30 different languages between 20 different nationalities. So you really learn uh, on your feet how to deal with you know, different cultures and etiquettes. But it taught me to deal with unexpected situations that you do not get in clinical medicine. Like I would never have believed that I would be in Jaipur airport one day talking to the head of the airport operations to see if I could bargain for a pair of a set of steps to go up to the plane. So for me, this was, um, you know, a big learning about how to have uh, discussions with people outside of medicine or to go to the Ministry of Health in Kenya and to advocate for why this plane should land in Nairobi airport. So that was a lot of skills outside of medicine and it really, I felt great. I felt like I was learning so much every day and that really enabled me to go on and, and um, uh, take my PhD studies. I lived in Cape Town for a couple of years. I looked at the um, immunobiology of aging and the eye is a wonderful model of aging because obviously it's, it's non, you can measure things non-invasively. Um, the lens, the retina, the macula, even the corneal endothelium can all be measured. And so you can see what aging changes uh, happen. And I looked at the um, ability of HIV to Im impact aging because sadly there's still a lot of HIV um, in Cape Town. And that's probably the subject of a whole different podcast. So I won't go into that. But what it enabled was 
an opportunity for me to, to ask the right questions, again, to put that master's in epi into practice and to publish these data. I think it's really important even now, you know, when we conduct studies, when we're working with patients, they're not simply patients, they're people. And we have a duty to, to make sure that the data we're collecting, we are sharing. It, it's our responsibility to those people who've given up their time to be part of research. So I felt very strongly, as does Wellcome Trust, that these data should be published. And it led to, I think, around 12 peer-reviewed publications. And that then led me to, I guess, the next pivot in my career, which was about a broader impact. So up until then, I'd really worked on observational data, thinking about risk factors and causality, or in the OR as a surgeon doing cataract surgery at a very one-to-one -one level. And it seemed to me the next step uh, in this constant quest for meeting unmet need and thinking about problems was probably a move to drug development and to the biopharma industry. And I was fortunate enough to uh, take a role with uh, Genentech Roche in clinical development. Uh, Tony Adamus uh, was uh, the head of the team there at the time, who of course was very famous for his work on uh, anti-VEGF. And uh, I got to present my PhD thesis uh, as a summary at the lunchtime meeting at the interview. And it was phenomenal because the questions that, that Tony and Jason Ehrlich, who's now at Kodiak Sciences, asked me were just like so insightful, like they were tougher than my PhD defense. And I just felt that, wow, if I'm in this environment where we are at the, you know, the mountains or traveling the mountains of science and innovation, and I'm with these people who are like-minded, what, you know, we could do amazing things. So I had a great time uh, in clinical development at Roche and uh, then at Novartis. And I then moved on to uh, medical affairs, which I think is really important because it addresses the bridge between R&D and commercialization. And I think this is where physicians can play a really important role because we have the credibility as physicians. Uh, we've seen patients, we understand and empathize with the patient journey. We have a, a network of fellow physicians and, and thought leaders. But we also, when we're immersed in industry, understand the commercial goals of what we're trying to do as well. So medical affairs can really help to be that, that bridge and so I was uh, appointed as the global lead at, um, at AbbVie, and uh, I worked on the launch and approval of Humira for non-infectious uveitis. And that is a blinding condition for, for uh, adults of, of working age. And, you know, in the clinic, you could basically these patients steroids or, or horrible immunosuppressants. They weren't the happy patients that I alluded to earlier. But to work on Humira and to get it approved, it's, I think, still the first and only approved biologic for uveitis. I may, I may be wrong now in 2022, but it was just a great way of having impact with a great team. And that took me to my next role then at Johnson & Johnson in Singapore. So that involved a, a leap uh, even further off, off the unbeaten path, I would say, to, to Asia, where I'd only been on business trips. But it was the first time I got to, to live, work, breathe uh, in Southeast Asia it was kind of like being in a very well-funded startup because we, uh, J&J just acquired AMO. Um, there are some great people I, I got to work with. And I think that's my key takeaways there is that it's the people and the networks uh, that, that you bring along with you um, that can help you achieve anything. And a fundamental part of that, that time there was understanding the great work that goes on at J&J and J Labs and the innovation, right? And that really spurred me on to what I'm doing now, which is early stage uh, investment and innovation in ophthalmology. It's a huge market with potential for huge impact. I mean, let's face it, there are over 2 billion people with some form of vision problem, and hopefully I can uh, play a small part in addressing that. So thanks for letting me share that part of my, my journey so far. No, Sophia, that was incredibly, incredibly insightful. There's honestly so much there. I'll just try to tease apart. And I have a feeling we're going to have like 30 takeaways at the end, but I will try to narrow it down to, to just the, the highest yield ones for our audience members. But you mentioned something about, you know, when you moved to back to clinical medicine from the bench, you got pulled back to the bench. And I thought that was an interesting way of actually phrasing it. And I think oftentimes we have like our heart pulling us somewhere, but then our brain or some other external influences tell us, no, like keep doing what you're doing. And, and, and there's always this tension, but it sounds like you really 
listen to that inner, whatever it was, that inner voice that was pulling you in different directions. And obviously you were able to succeed in all those different directions. So I think for our audience members, it's just important to keep in mind that if you feel like you're being pulled towards a certain direction more and more, uh, at some point you have to listen to that voice. Uh, obviously real life gets in the way and, and we understand that it can be challenging and it's not possible for everyone, but it's something to actually keep in mind. And there's going to be failures along the way, right? Like you mentioned that clinicians aren't often used to failing because, you know, we go to, we get good grades, we go to medical school, we do well there, and, and we're just surrounded by high achieving people. But when you trot off the beaten path, it's a little bit different because now you're in a different environment and quote unquote, like failure is, is a little bit more accepted in, in sort of the business world because you can learn a lot from it rather than uh, w within clinical medicine. And, and so being comfortable with uncertainty and failure, I think is another thing we can learn from you. Let's jump a little bit to what you're doing now. You ended by saying that you're in early stage ophthalmology investing right now in the biotech and medtech spaces. And last year, the Wall Street Journal covered your story. And what a fantastic story. It was also talking about Peppermint Venture Partners, you shared with the Wall Street Journal an important idea that ophthalmologists are not afraid of change and often actually embrace it. Your path certainly shows that. As an investor at Peppermint Venture Partners, you look for the most cutting-edge startups in medtech and biotech with an ophthalmology focus. So my question is, what areas of optho innovation are you most excited about? And, and can you speak to the utility of software solutions or software hardware combinations in treating optho disorders, including things like vision rest restoration therapy or remote monitoring devices? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Shad. Great question. And um, I want to thank the Wall Street Journal for, you know, highlighting or making that story around what we're doing. And in particular, the, the journalist, Brian Gormley, who listen to my story. And that's the other thing I would say is that everyone wants to listen to a story, right? Because it really resonates uh, with, with the listener. So, um, and also the team at Peppermint, of course, are very aligned to this uh, thesis around uh, ophthalmology innovation, because, you know, I firmly believe we're in this, uh, a new golden area or a renaissance for, for ophthalmology. So things that I'm really excited about right now, um, I would say I kind of divided into a few like broad areas. Because the eye, of course, is, is amenable to therapeutics, um, to med tech, and to a variety of different interventions. But in just broad buckets, I would say cell and gene therapy is very exciting. Um, you may have seen, or your listeners may have seen in the media, just at the end of last year, uh, Novartis entered to, into an agreement with Gyroscope Therapeutics, and Roche also entered into an agreement with Lineage Cell Therapeutics. And these are both companies that are investigating different modalities of cell and or gene therapy. So this space is going to be very exciting. Also, um, Kapil Bhatti's uh, lab in at the NEI, they're doing some phenomenal work on ocular stem cells um, and to think about how we could you know, design therapeutics, understanding uh, the potential uh, pathways that his, his lab are working on. So I think this is a real area that, that's nascent, but very ripe for, for innovation. Uh, the second broad bucket is presbyopia, which uh, is the name for a blurry close vision that comes with age. So um, what can happen, and you may have seen this in some people, is that you know, you're holding your iPhone close, but suddenly after the age of 40, you have to hold it further and further away to get a clear image. Or maybe you need to put your, someone would joke that your arm needs to be a meter long for you to be able to read, right? So this is going to affect 2 billion people in the world. Um, and AbbVie just released uh, or had an approval for uh, drops to treat this. And I think this is the, the cusp of what we're going to see in, in presbyopia innovation. So I'm very excited about that as meeting unmet need, but also as a market opportunity. And then I would say um, AI-enabled biomarkers uh, and drug discovery. So, you know, everyone wants to use the term AI, of course, but... Um, you know, ophthalmology is full of very many firsts in innovation, right? And autonomous AI uh, was one of the first, right, for diabetic retinopathy screening. Um, but there are some good companies now, some early stage companies who are using um, or developing AI-enabled AI biomarkers to help um, de-risk for clinical trials. So you can get that early kill signal early on in a clinical development program using uh, AI to help you. Um, and I think as well, it's not going to be too long before we can think about quantum computing 
uh, for drug discovery in ophthalmology therapeutics as well, because, you know, there's still a big playing field for therapeutics, uh, particularly in the retina for ophthalmology. And then moving on to the more kind of, um, let's say, med tech side, I'm excited about digital twins. So you think about um, surgery planning. Well, you know, when I was doing cataract surgery, it was kind of pretty simplistic in the sense that the patient got one lens that was a monofocal lens, right? I just did for one focal length. And now there are so many sophisticated technology offering, offerings. Um, some companies have some great solutions where they could simulate the outcome of the surgery and help the surgeon to plan for optimal outcomes for these essential premium offerings. And so in tandem with the digital twinning, I'm also very excited by surgical robotics in ophthalmology. And of course, you know, we've seen how great Intuitive is. We've seen the big valuations and financing for companies like CMR Surgical. And I think, you know, ophthalmology is also on this great cusp. Um, there's the Iris team, I think they're called out in, I think it's Stanford, I, I want to say. Um, but it's definitely in California. And they're looking at some great ways of bringing robotic surgery uh, to the back of the eye. Because cataract surgery, we have femtosecond laser, which really en enables a great level of precision. But for the back of the eye, um, you know, when we think about these cell and gene therapies that are going to be delivered, that involves some highly technical, sophisticated retinal surgery. And I think if robotic surgery can, can help to achieve that, it may enable broader access uh, of these therapies for more patients in time. And then I think, you know, Shad, to your point about um, vision restoration, I think two elements there. I think, you know, Lineage Cell uh, Therapeutics is a company, I think for the first time, showed um, data in geographic atrophy, which is the the other form of, or, of AMD. So you have wet AMD, um, which we can use drugs like um, uh, ranibizumab or um, bevacizumab to treat, and you have dry AMD, and there's no treatment to date, um, particularly for geographic atrophy, which is the end stage. And uh, Lineage have got a form of cell therapy, which showed that the geographic atrophy was actually not increasing. In fact, probably decreasing after treatment. So this is some form of cellular restoration. It's very early days, but it's quite promising. And then finally, optogenetics, I think is very exciting as well, particularly um, in ophthalmology. And, you, you know, I think Novartis also acquired, I think, Arctos Vision uh, earlier last, later last year, which shows that, you know, big pharma is also picking up on these innovation leaps. And then for remote monitoring, I think ophthalmology lends itself very well to this because, as I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, a lot of the parameters are non-invasive. So there are companies uh, that like Notal Vision is a great example. They developed a device that can do home OCT monitoring. Now, OCT is optical coherence tomography, and this can enable us to understand how a patient is uh, uh, reacting after being given a, a drug or a therapeutic um, for their maybe macular degeneration or, or diabetic retinopathy. And it under helps us to understand how the retinas responding. And if a patient can do this at home, rather than having to go to a clinic every four weeks, this could be tr quite transformational. I think we're still very early on in enabling that in the patient journey. I don't think we're at the stage yet where we're going to see, you know, a 75-year-old doing month uh, weekly OCT scans as part of her regular kind of follow-up. Where I do see the innovation leap is maybe for clinical trials, right, where you don't need to bring a patient in every every two weeks or something for follow-up, if you can do validated remote measurements um, to enable uh, understanding the outcomes of a clinical trial. So, so as you can see, uh, there's a lot I'm like, excited about uh, in ophthalmology and innovation. And uh, it's just great to see that there are, you know, we see so many deals uh, coming through and new companies who want to talk to us. So uh, I'm just, I'm always thrilled to meet entrepreneurs and innovators, I would say across healthcare, but particularly in ophthalmology. Thank you, Sophia, for sharing that. Maybe it's just my perspective, but the eye has always been a little bit of a black box for me because even after going through four years of medical school and, and being in general surgery, the eye was something that everyone joked is immensely complicated for such a small organ. And we, we left it to the ophthalmologist for the most part to deal with the, uh, the eye. And that really shines through when you actually speak about it. Obviously, you have such deep expertise here you know, it's really appreciated that you shared it with our audience. I know that biodistribution and potency are big barriers for developing drugs in ophthalmology. And, and there's startups that are trying to use sort of biomaterials-based patches or gels or things like that to actually administer 
whether it's novel cell or gene therapy or small molecule drugs, uh, directly in, into the eye. So there's a lot, lot happening in this space. And I obviously encourage anyone, whether it's physicians or non-physicians, who are innovating in this space to, to reach out to, to Sophia and Peppermint Venture Partners to, to learn more. You know, I wanted to discuss a little bit about your work with global women in VC. I, I think it's incredibly important and it's worth spending several minutes on. You're a member there and it's a large community from what I understand for women in venture capital where they can connect, collaborate, and create opportunities for one another. Can you just share with us a little bit about the group and, and what your role has been, why it's so important to you? And just relatedly, what are some of the most common barriers that you know, you've faced if you're willing to share or that women face in the VC space and how can we work to overcome those barriers? Well, firstly, you know, Shad and Alexi, I'm really grateful that you brought up this topic because it's, uh, you know, we should have a forum to discuss this because it, it's so timely and so important. So uh, Women in VC, as you rightly pointed out, is uh, a community for for women in venture to, to get together. And um, it tends to be for, for women who are either partners or venture partners or, or maybe um, analysts or associates in venture. And it, I was introduced to it actually by uh, a colleague who's now a friend, Iona Rajkumar, who is another physician investor, actually also based in London. So it goes to show that a lot of it is around the ability to, uh, or provides a, an ability and platform to network. And I think that's really, uh, you know, its its primary goal is because, you know, we are a, still a small number uh, relative to, to male uh, venture capitalists. And, you know, I was just digging through uh, the data again today because it still doesn't bring a smile to my face. But if you look at the US, you know, 95% of partners in VC firms are men. So like that fraction is, is still too small. And I think it's slightly better in Europe, but, but not much. And so this forum, uh, Women in VC, you know, we have a Slack channel. Uh, there are um, events we can go to globally. It really gives us a chance to share ideas. And I would say these will be business ideas, uh, you know, to talk about fundraisers or what we're doing, uh, new investment theses that we might want to share. It enables us to support each other. So there are different channels about, you know, opportunities, uh, for minority deal flow, for example, uh, books for, that you might want to share that you're reading or podcasts indeed. So I'll be, I'll be sure to share today's episode with, with the women in VC. Um, but also, I think what's really important, it gives us the opportunity um, to celebrate the wins as well, because I think we're so fixated on the, the kind of uh, minority aspect of women in VC that we sometimes focus on that um, and don't celebrate the incremental wins that we are having. That's not to say that there are, you know, loads every day, but we should, I believe, celebrate the gains that we do have. Um, and, you know, what we're really seeing is that there's an untapped potential, right, for women-led venture funds. And and I think what we're seeing as well, and, and, you know, there are data to prove this, and I was pleasantly surprised that the Financial Times hit upon this, you know, just a couple of weeks back. And they actually provided a report, um, and there was a nice infographic, and they said that um, it's clear that funds with greater leadership diversity do better and that diverse investment teams actually outperformed those with no women or ethnic minority employees by an average of 20 basis points a year. Um, so I think this is very compelling for us uh, to, to take notice. And I, you know, I, I really look now uh, as a woman in VC, when I look at other funds, I'm, I am looking at the composition of the, the fund, uh, who are the partners, uh, not only, you know, who they are, but what do they bring? Uh, what skills do they have? And, you know, who's bringing the chance, uh, you know, to, to, to lead in these funds? And in terms of the, the barriers shared, yeah, I'm very happy to, to share the barriers I've come up against. I would say there can be a lot of um, unconscious bias. Um, I think some are, you know, pretty obvious, but still happen. Like I can still get deals sent to me as Mr. Patai. And I think that can be, you know, it doesn't take rocket science to like look at the website or even look at my first name, perhaps, if you're not sure. But, uh, you know, I think there's still like a, an assumption that the person in the, in, who's looking at deals must be a, a man. Um, and also um, there can be sometimes, you know, in panels or um, platforms to discuss uh, venture and innovation, um, a preponderance to the so-called manal, right, a panel full of men. And I think what we're really trying to do is, is kind of to shift that narrative so that it shouldn't be about, it, it doesn't have to be 
equal men and women at a panel. It should be about the best people or the most qualified people at the table talking. Um, but I, I do find it uh, sort of, you know, sometimes you look at a, a panel to discuss femtech in the future. And if it's four men there, um, I think, you know, there's something that needs to be said there very, very kind of loudly. Um, but I think mostly it's about you know, the opportunity, the barriers are coming down and, and it's thanks to the conversations that we're having, like the one we're having right now, that we can continue to, to break down these barriers. So uh, there's, you know, we've made some gains, but still a lot more to do. Yeah, no, Sophia, thank you so much for sharing that. Very, very insightful. I guess one thing that I'll say is from the perspective of men in VC, I think what's important is just having some self-awareness uh, and reflecting on where our conceptual gaps are. And so I'll just share a personal story, which is we did five or six episodes of Physicians of the Beaten Path and then realized that the first five or six were all men. It's not something that we ever thought about until someone actually pointed it out. And then we said, oh, wow, that's not good. And we just realized that that's because our network, for whatever reason, just leaned that way. And we've made a very conscious effort to make sure that we hear diverse voices moving forward. And so it's not just the heavy lifting also have to be done by men as well, realizing that there's we can change the way we either think or we can open up our networks broadly or we can at least be self-aware our gaps are. Otherwise, things can't change. So really, really appreciate you, you mentioning this. It's a very important topic for us here at HBS. And one of my friends, uh, Rajvina Rajaram, she actually hosts or co-hosts rather a podcast called Women in Venture Capital, which is a, a very exciting podcast that I listen to. I'll pass it on. Uh, we could talk for hours, but I'll pass it on to my colleague, uh, Alex, who has a few questions for you. But thank you, Sophia. Thanks, Shad. Thank you very much, uh, Sophia and Shad. Those are great questions. I guess a couple of points that I found really interesting like the point on diversity is so important. I remember doing a uh, venture capital fellowship with an organization called Included VC. It's a UK-based organization. And I mean, when you look at the statistics, it, it is shocking <laughs> in terms of diversity statistics. And I think this reminds me of Dame Vivian Hunt's work on diversity, where she highlights that like, to actually change the diversity profile, you should change the top of the organizations. Because if you don't have diversity at the executive level, for example, if you don't have diversity at the partners level in VC, like that wouldn't provide incentive, that wouldn't provide the role models for diverse people to join that career path. This is such an important topic. If you don't have diversity, we're just excluding half or more than half of the, of the population that would have massive innovation potential. And I think the idea of all the digital applications and and ophthalmology is very interesting because I think it's such a rich medium with so many imaging techniques that we can take with so many digital biomarkers. So um, I think, Sophia, I share your enthusiasm in terms of AI applications there. Like, I think there is a lot of potential and especially like with digital twins, I think there's an emerging, very interesting field of surgeomics where we can actually like try to digitize all the features that we can collect around surgery and try to use that to build models that would, would help us manage patients. This has been a fantastic conversation so far, and I want to move it a little bit uh, towards uh, your work with J&J. You've had a tremendous impact with J&J. You've managed to create medtech presence in the region, in Asia. You've launched three devices over a year and a half. So I'm really curious to know how was your experience contributing to building up that ecosystem? And what were your key learnings from that? Mm, thank you, Alex. Uh, be happy to share that with you. So I think I, I mentioned earlier on, it was just, um, you know, three kind of things happening at once. It was me taking on a new role, um, taking on uh, or living in a new region or a new country, and then starting up something completely new. Because this was, uh, as I mentioned, the acquisition of, of AMO into J&J &J Surgical Vision. It was just, how can I say, uh, the best of times and the worst of times when we started because, you know, we had no roadmap. It was really like being in this startup and it was like, go forward and, you know, bring out this technology and make sure we hit the numbers as well. And uh, I, I think it was, I, I'm naturally an optimist. And I think in this newly created role, it was opportunity to, to set out a new roadmap. And I think there are maybe two key takeaways. Firstly, um, you need great technology. 
And that's the, the floor that you should be working from. And, you know, luckily, you know, we had that in J&J. &J. The surgical uh, vision department is, is phenomenal. The R&D is, you know, unrivaled. And I had some great, uh, I would say, philosophical and R&D discussions with the head of R&D, uh, MK Raheja. And he really, you know, he gave us great tools to work with. So I think, you know, we had the good science and the good technology to begin with. And then the second takeaway was really around the the, the building of, of, a, of a team to enable this to happen. Because let's face it, we could have the greatest technology in the world, but without a good team to enable it, uh, you wouldn't be able to, to uh, launch it. You wouldn't be able to market it. It wouldn't get into patients' eyes. Patients wouldn't be able to see with this premium technologies. And that takes more than a doctor or a surgeon. And, you know, for me, I think I already had those key learnings instilled from my PhD and, and from working, uh, you know, on the Flying Eye Hospital. But it really drummed home to me how to, to set, drive a sense of leadership that really enables everyone to have a sense of, of purpose. So I think it also depends on great partnerships. I was very fortunate that I worked with a great um, marketing colleague, uh, Mandeep Grover, um, who he's still in, in Singapore. We remain great friends to, today. And we understood the synergies and the partnership, right, of medical and marketing and how you could, you know, hand in glove, work together um, to enable great things to happen. So it, it wasn't, we didn't take the, the opportunity to uh, launch three products as something that oh my God, how are we going to do this? It was more like, hey, what's the best way we can do this? And I think with that purpose, that positivity around how to achieve something, that set the tone. And so what we were able to do then with our, our broader kind of uh, stakeholders was really uh, you know, give them that, that sense of enthusiasm and empower them to have that sense of ownership. Because you know, there were many ups and downs. I mean, the R&D um, and the production facility is in Groningen in the Netherlands. And, you know, we're in, sitting in Singapore and we were told, hey, you have to get these ready for a, a launch and approval in Thailand, you know, in three weeks. And there were manufacturing uh, delays. And it's like, how can we get people to be on board? And what I realized is that, you know, you can't just say to someone, oh, I need this in three weeks because it's important. Why would anyone want to do go the extra mile? But what became very clear to me, I think, as a leader there is that when I shared, you know, the story about why are we doing this now? What is the impact of this lens? Why is it going to change our vision or outcomes and lives for these patients? Uh, and why should we do it in this time? Why is it important? Then everyone was willing to go the extra mile. And so people from supply chain to logistics, uh, you know, to, to accounts would email me and say, I understand now. You know, I feel great. I want to be part of this. So I think to give people... Uh, in any organization, a sense of purpose uh, and, and to, to lead, to serve them, uh, you know, was a big takeaway for me, which I, I hope I can take forward in other roles uh, that I do. Um, but also, as I mentioned, that really set me on the path for innovation because J&J &J is also a, a great um, hub for innovation, not just in vision, but across the board, as you know. And I think to be immersed in that ecosystem really energized me to go forward um, and uh, to, to make the pivot, I guess, uh, into early stage innovation myself. Thank you, Sophia. I think that is very powerful. And I think the point of creating an intrinsic incentive for people to really contribute to that effort beyond the salary, like meaning creating vision and that goal is like such an important incentive to attract the best talent. So I certainly appreciate that point. I think that's just fascinating insight. So uh, thank you for that. I'd love to get your thoughts in terms of how did you translate that experience into your work on the venture fund now? I think the UK and Europe have massive entrepreneurial potential, but the ecosystem is still to some extent underdeveloped compared to other locations in the world, such as, for example, multiple locations in the U.S., like the uh, biotech hub in Boston or the tech hub in San Francisco. For example, I think some work needs to be done on the London Stock Exchange to make it like more friendly towards biotechs, make it more friendly towards tech IPOs. And so I'm really curious to know your thoughts of why you think global investors should look at investment opportunities in the UK and Europe. And one of my really good mentors has actually just set up a fund in the UK. And how should we go ahead to develop that ecosystem? Because the underlying science is fantastic. What a 
Brilliant question. Well, I'll take it in pieces. I, I think I, I agree and resonate on the kind of the kind of top level aspects around the environment for IPOs and for companies to to get on the public markets. It's it's suboptimal here. Um, and I, I feel like I, I I hopefully could be instrumental to that to some level, but it would be very uh, sort of uh, high level. Where I can have more impact, I suppose, is in the venture scene. And you know, your point about the science being brilliant. I think, yeah, again, that's the foundation which we're working from. So I think the key element here is really around people and networks. And I, I think that's where London, uh, I'm going to be a bit biased here because I am a Londoner, but I think Londoner really excels, you know, over and above a lot of Europe as well. And I think data also supports that. When, when you look at biotech dollars coming in, London was doing a really good job and it has done for the last couple of years. Or And I shouldn't say London, I should say UK more broadly, of course, Cambridge and Bristol and Oxford are also big centers for innovation. So I think what we can really harness and, and leverage is uh, the uniqueness of, of the UK. So we have disparate centers in, in all these cities, but we also have great foundations in our R&D. And that's not just through uh, startups or accelerators, but also through universities. So for example, at Moorfields, which is one of our premier eye institutions, I think it's, it's world famous, you know, the R&D section there is continually evolving and growing. And that's a great link then for uh, spin-outs of, of emerging therapies, but also to be involved in, in the conversations that are ongoing in academia. So, you know, DeepMind, for example, collaborate very extensively uh, with Moorfields Eye Hospital. So I think it's being able to put the points together from all these different ecosystems. And in a similar vein, there's a group called Insight, uh, led by Professor Alistair Dennison and um, uh, Piers Keane, who I think needs no introduction because he's so famous in the world of, of artificial intelligence. So I think they're enabling access to huge data sets, which can be very powerful for AI-enabled AI drug discovery, uh, for clinical trial uh, planning. So I think, you know, rather than thinking about what we can't do or why we're smaller at the moment, uh, you know, geographically or from a kind of dollar size uh, in the region, uh, we can look to the great networks that we already have in place within the UK. And, you know, just thinking off the top of my head about my network, you know, I have colleagues across as, as far north as, you know, the north of Scotland, uh, but also down south to Bristol. And there's a big vibrant community in, in ophthalmology, for example. So it, it's, I think we're on this, again, a, a renaissance kind of uh, era where everything is really coming together. And I you know, I, I'm not going to get political about, about Brexit, but I, I know that, you know, we have a chance now to, to differentiate ourselves uh, as the UK, as uh, providing a really solid offering that, that biotech should, should want to, uh, you know, base itself here, harness the talent that's here as well. I mean, that you've both seen yourself probably and you are immersed in, in the kind of the levels of um, in sort of intellect and, and talent that's available in the UK so I think if we can bring all that together, that can be really a uh, powerful motivator. And, you know, I, I just looked at a few deals uh, just today and they, I have to say they were all from the UK uh, with some great technology uh, in, in ophthalmology and, and a little broader as well. So I, I think uh, we're just at the beginning. Most certainly, Sophia. I'm also very excited about the potential of the UK and Europe. I think there is so many massive opportunities. We're also arranging a chat soon with Olivia Kavlan, who runs Alchemab in the UK. So I'm really excited to give the audience an exposure to the rich UK ecosystem. So thank you for sharing your insight there. Sophia, you, you probably had like one of the jobs that most medical students and uh, young residents dream of, which is like flying around the world, uh, <laughs> different places, like exploring the world, helping people, doing good. So I'm really curious to know your thoughts, perhaps, and your suggestions to our audience. How should they think about doing the first step of going outside the beaten path? What metrics should they optimize for? Like if you take all your extensive experience so far and kind of go back to the point where you've made the decision, what would you optimize for? And what do you recommend that other people optimize for? Um well, firstly, let me say that, you know, everyone's journey uh, is different. So there's no magic way of, of doing it. But if I think back to our the first part of our conversation with Shad, he mentions a good point about listening to your kind of inner strings or maybe we could say your gut, I would say. So if there's something telling you that you're being pulled in a certain way, 
or if there's something that really energizes you and you feel that and you know you're at your best when you're doing that. I mean, you will know it. Like I knew when I was at the bench doing some lab work, I, I kind of really geeked out on it and I knew I was, I was loving it. And I thought, oh, I and then when I was in the clinic, I thought, okay, I, I like this. And, you know, you're both right. As medics, we kind of tend to luckily be good at most things. So you have to think what really energizes you. And I think that will put you in a good direction. So that's the kind of, I guess, the holistic piece that I wanted to highlight. I guess the second thing is some practical advice in terms of optimizing for the future, which would be, you know, medicine is a great career as a, as a you know, uh, how can I say, I don't want to say regular physician, but a physician who kind of stays along the kind of well-traveled path. Um, and I definitely think, because I get a lot of medical students who do reach out to me via different platforms asking for advice, like, should I do my internship? Should I not? Should I do clinical training? Should I not? Um, my personal opinion is that it's very worthwhile at least doing the internship. Um, in the UK, it's two years, for example. And then any amount of clinical training, you can do it thereafter. Because, you know, I think being a physician or and or a surgeon, um, it, it's a privilege, right? We, you know, patients are often at their most vulnerable when they see us. Um, and we are, they're trusting their, their lives or their eyes to us. Um, and I think it really helps us, whatever we do, to have a sense of, of empathy uh, for the patient. Um, but it also gives us this very direct understanding of the healthcare ecosystem. Um, so I, I can, you know, even now, if I'm looking at a deal, I can think, will this... Um, you know, therapeutic, the way it's kind of uh, going to be delivered and the kind of plans for access, is this going to work in the NHS? And I can immediately reflect on an experience. And I think that's where my very practical advice would be is that, you know, people are thinking about different careers or how to differentiate themselves as physicians. If you've seen a patient, touched a patient, you know, put a, put a scalpel on the surface of their skin or a, or a corneal blade into the cornea, it gives you a different level of insight. And so I think that can really help to to optimize for the future and give you unique insights into the patient journey and into the clinical world overall. And maybe a side piece of advice for that, because I had an interesting discussion with a medical student a few, few weeks ago, and he, he said that he hadn't thought about this perspective, so maybe I can share it, is that maybe when you're doing a, a rotation in cardiology, for example, but you know you, know you want to go and do a startup in femtech, right? So the thing probably not to do is to, you know, when the cardiologist says, oh, you know, are you really looking forward to cardiology or what do you want to do? Um, it's probably not the best thing is to say, well, I'm just here to do my rotation and I'm actually going to do a startup in femtech because it kind of, you know, it, it affects the relationships and it, a lot of whatever we're going to do in life is about relationship building. And what I've always found is, yeah, sometimes I'm doing rotations or projects or in teams that I don't really get energized by, but I know I, sh I have to do that. The best thing is to, to ask questions. And so maybe my advice to, to this colleague was ask the cardiologist, what do you love about cardiology? What are the new things that are happening in cardiology that really excite you? And you may come across with this pearl of wisdom like, oh, yeah, a woman with this particular problem uh, really suffer and boom, that's your idea for your differentiated uh, idea in femtech or something, right? So there's always something we can learn from people outside our direct sphere. So I think if I could say, like, those are my, my key pearls for, for optimization and just be, be empathic, be open about all the opportunities that come your way. Sophia, this is very insightful and inspiring. I find your point about failure very powerful because I think that, for example, in business school and in, in many famous books like The Innovator's Dilemma by Clay Christensen, we are taught that in organizations we should create a fail-safe space to encourage people to take risk and innovate, to create that innovative dynamic within organizations. But what I've observed is that we fail to create that space personally and so that actually, like failing to create that space limits our growth. So I found your point on being proactive about creating that space for you, learning how to fail gracefully and learning how to learn from your failures. It's like such an important thing because like if you can do that, you will be on a massive trajectory of growth. But if you'll be avoiding failure, like you will not be putting yourself in positions outside of the comfort zone, and you will not be maximizing your learning rate and learning potential. 
So I found that insight very powerful and thank you for sharing that, Sophia. Um, this conversation has been fascinating. I've learned a lot and I'm sure Shad has done as well. So we're, we're very grateful for your time. Thank you so much for being with us. Chad, Alex, thank you both very much for this opportunity to, to share my passion uh, for innovation, for women in VC and, and about ophthalmology and, and for your insightful questions. And uh, yeah, it's been a real pleasure for me too. Thank you, Sophia. I really appreciate it. Chad, that was a really awesome discussion with Sophia. There were so many insights during the interview. I think my main takeaway would be around the importance of developing a broader understanding of what constitutes the healthcare system. Like when I started medicine, I thought that the human biology is complex. But when I learned about like the different elements that compose our healthcare system, like different financing parts, different regulatory parts, like it is an immensely complicated system. But going outside the beaten path and starting to develop an understanding of that system can actually be a very powerful way to guide you to making a decision on which direction you want to pursue outside the beaten path. So that's from my side. Over to you. Yeah, Alex, I think that makes a lot of sense. And we've already discussed a lot of really high-yield takeaways during the episode with Sophia. But I think for me, her focus on teamwork was very inspiring. Obviously, teamwork is incredibly important in moving the needle in healthcare, not just clinicians, not just physicians, not only just clinicians, but even beyond that. And Sophia mentioned working with pilots and folks at the airport to figure out the logistics of landing in their Orbis flying plane in a small town just to go and provide life-saving healthcare there. So that's an extreme example. But even within the hospital, there's so many different types of people who contribute to the care of the patients. So I think that teamwork is really focused on well within business school. And I've really learned a lot from the last two years from that perspective. But I didn't get as much focus and exposure to that in medical school. And I think that really has to change. And I really do think it's starting to change. But the focus on teamwork needs to be higher and higher in, in clinical medicine. And I think that's an important takeaway for me. Perfect. Thank you, Shad. For our audience out there, stay tuned. Join us for our next episode in which we would have guests with very, very interesting life stories. And for our audience out there, please remember to follow us on social media and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And to catch our latest podcasts on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. To get in touch with us, you can email us at physiciansofthebeatenpath at gmail.com or visit our website at potbppodcast.com. See you soon.